Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, This Week in Blackness, Counterspin, Amicus from Slate, Funny or Die, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Jimmy Dore Show. Justice Antonin Scalia has just died. Wow! What an amazing turn of events. Now, let me explain why this is monumentally important. Right now, the Supreme Court is five to four on incredibly important decisions. There's five conservative justices, four liberal justices. A conservative justice has just passed away. That's Antonin Scalia. That means if he's replaced by a conservative, the Supreme Court remains conservative. If he's replaced by a liberal... That means the Supreme Court goes five to four in terms of progressives now outweighing conservatives. Now, President Obama gets to pick the next Supreme Court nominee. The problem is the Senate has to confirm him. The reason that's a problem is because now the Republicans control the Senate. It would be political suicide for any of the Republicans to vote for any Obama nominee. They will almost certainly block it for the next ten months. Would that be unprecedented? Yes. It would break the record for how long a Supreme Court nominee has been blocked by about threefold. If you think the Republicans won't do that, you're crazy. You don't know anything about politics. The Republicans will block it, block it, block it, no matter how unprecedented it is. Anyone who votes for an Obama nominee before the election on the Republican side will likely uh, have, be, have a challenger and lose their next election in a primary on the Republican side. That's just the reality of it. The only way that's averted is if Obama, in a monumental mistake, in order to appease the Republicans, picks someone who is right-wing, which would, which is also unthinkable. I hope he doesn't even consider that notion. Which then means the next president of the United States of America will also determine whether the Supreme Court is conservative or liberal. Wow! In my lifetime, there's nonstop talk about how every presidential election is the most momentous one. But this one, given the facts of today, will almost certainly be the most momentous election of our lifetime. Because with one vote, you guys now get to decide two branches of government. You'll get to pick the president. The president will also get to pick the next Supreme Court justice. Presidents often pick Supreme Court justices. That's part of why it's so important to vote for a president. But in this case, it's a guarantee. Likely, as soon as they come in, they'll get to pick a Supreme Court justice. And they'll get to determine if the court becomes liberal or conservative. What an important decision we're going to be faced with as soon as uh, this unfolds. Wow! I, I can't tell you how important this is. So, now, finally, I know that on the Republican side, what they'll do is, uh, I am the most ideologically pure, so you should pick me to be your presidential choice on the Republican side, and so that I will pick the most conservative Supreme Court justice. On the Democratic side, it will probably play out in a different way. I am sure that Hillary Clinton will say, no, you can't risk Bernie Sanders. you got to pick me because we can't have a Republican picking the next Supreme Court nominee. Now, there's a problem with that argument. Bernie Sanders, according to all the polling, not me, the polling says... He is more electable. Every single poll indicates that on one-on-one matchups against all of the different Republican opponents, he scores much better than Hillary Clinton does. 
So Bernie Sanders will make the argument, no, I'm more electable, and I do much better with independents. That's why I'm, I do better than Hillary Clinton in all these general election matchups. you got to pick me so that I will not only win, get you a liberal Supreme Court justice, but I'll be the one picking it. You can bet your bottom dollar that it will actually be a real progressive and not someone who's down the middle. This could not be more important. So here we go. Title stakes. Both the presidency and the Supreme Court is now on the line. Wow. So yesterday we talked about the passing of 79-year-old right-wing Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. I told you that many Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, were saying there is not going to be any appointment until after the presidential election. We have to let the people have a say. And of course, this was absolutely and comically ridiculous. The people had a say. They elected President Obama to serve from January of 2013 until January of 2017. And any Supreme Court vacancies that come up during that time are President Obama's uh, to nominate a, a, a candidate for. Now, we've been investigating what was probably hypocrisy, probably a double standard on the behalf of Republicans. And oh, what we turned up, Lewis, the entire framing from the Republicans is based on a sort of two-part idea, right? Part one of the idea is Supreme Court openings in the last year of a presidency are rare, and thus we should handle them differently than we would during other years of a, a presidency. And that it is controversial or unusual with less than a year before the next election to decide on new justices, right? That's sort of what the Republican obstruction is based on, the idea that these situations are both rare and very, very controversial. Both assertions are totally laughable. And I want to go in order and really, as I like to do piece by piece, break this down for you. So let's look at assertion number one, that these uh, Supreme Court vacancies in presidential election years are rare. That is not true. Eight times during the 20th century, there were election year Supreme Court nominees. Okay, that is that is number one. Uh, no, no question about it whatsoever. That is absolutely the reality. So then the next question is, okay, well, is it common or rare that when there are these election year Supreme Court nominees, that they are confirmed. Let's now analyze that bit of data. Six times during the 20th century, six of those eight times, election year Supreme Court nominees were confirmed. So the uh, two times where this didn't happen, Lewis, one was due to just lack of time to get it done. Right now, it is not pressing. We have plenty of time to get a new Supreme Court justice nominated and confirmed. One of the two times where it didn't happen during a presidential election year, there really wasn't enough time. Okay, and that, that's, a, that's just an empirical fact. The other time, 
there was bipartisan filibustering of uh, a Lyndon B. Johnson nominee in a sort of very specific situation. It wasn't just like a partisan obstruction situation like we have now, but it gets even better because when we look at Mitch McConnell and the current Republicans specifically, you will note that in 1988, Mitch McConnell himself, who is leading the charge to obstruct President Obama's eventual Supreme Court nominee, in 1988, McConnell himself voted to confirm a Supreme Court nominee during Ronald Reagan's last year in office. That nominee happened to be current Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. And in addition to that, Chuck Grassley also voted to confirm Anthony Kennedy in 1988. We'll talk more about Chuck Grassley a little bit later. So, broadly speaking, what statistics do we have about how long it takes to confirm a Supreme Court justice? Would it be rushed for President Obama to do this right now with uh, nine months left until the next election and 11 months left until the next president would take over? Absolutely not. Let's take a look at some of the data involved there. Number one, the Senate has never taken more than 125 days to vote on a, a successor to the Supreme Court from the time of their nomination. 125 days. Keep that number in mind. Number two, the average time to confirmation or rejection or withdrawal of a Supreme Court nominee is 25 days. 25 days. And since 1975, the average days from nomination until the final Senate vote have been 67. Okay, so now that we know those numbers, how much time do we have upon Justice Scalia's death 342 days remained in President Obama's second term, Lewis. Nearly three times the maximum that it has ever taken the Senate to vote on a successor for a Supreme Court position. Absolutely no reason whatsoever that President Obama shouldn't be able to nominate and get a decision, a vote from the Senate on his replacement for Antonin Scalia. I think you're forgetting one important reason. Oh, go ahead. And Obama is a socialist, communist, <laughs> terrorist, Indonesian Muslim, hell-bent on destroying the country. You forgot about that. Without considering that, it might seem like there's a Republican double standard, but I guess the double standard is that we aren't realizing how different President Obama is from past presidents. Yeah, so absolutely ridiculous. Don't fall for the right-wing nonsense. I don't like your company, so sick of you. How could I be so stupid to have faith in you? You're the one to blame for all that has gone wrong. The president of our, these United States took to SCOTUS blog for those of you who are court watchers or lawyers or constitutional law nerds of any sort, you are probably familiar with SCOTUS blog. It is a blog that basically deta details all of the ongoings, the goings-on at the Supreme Court. It is not affiliated with the Supreme Court in any official capacity, but um, it's a really great, it's a great blog if you want to know what's going on with cases and on any day that there is a Supreme Court decision that is that is imminent and you happen to be on Twitter, you will tend to see a lot of us law nerds 
doing this thing called hashtag waiting for Lyle because Lyle Denniston is the guy who runs SCOTUS blog and he's usually the first one to come out with any news about Supreme Court, about Supreme Court cases. So when gay marriage was all like, woohoo, Lyle was the first one to tell us on the Twitters. Good man. At any rate, uh, SCOTUS blog was, was, was kind enough to grant President Obama some space on their little outfit where he could, uh, talk about why it is, it is his constitutional duty to fill the Supreme Court vacancy. Because, you know, Antonin Scalia up and died a couple weeks ago. President Obama amusingly said, quote, And with thanks to SCOTUS blog for allowing me to guest post today, I thought I'd share some spoiler-free insights into what I think about before appointing the person who will be our next Supreme Court justice. And I enjoy the fact that he said spoiler-free insights. He basically went on to say that the person will be eminently qualified, have an independent mind, rigorous intellect, impeccable credentials, a record of excellence, yada, yada, yada. But he also said, and this is important, I'm also mindful that there will be cases that reach the Supreme Court in which the law is not clear. There will be cases in which a judge's analysis necessarily will be shaped by his or her own perspective, ethics, and judgment. That's why the third quality I seek in a judge is a keen understanding that justice is not about abstract legal theory nor some footnote in a dusty casebook. It's the kind of life experience earned outside the classroom and the courtroom, experience that suggests he or she views the law not only as an intellectual exercise, but also grasps the way it affects the daily reality of people's lives in a big, complicated democracy and in rapidly changing times. And in my view, that paragraph was an official middle finger to Justice Scalia. That's how I see it. Because Justice Scalia was an originalist. He believed that the Constitution says what the Constitution says, and if we're going to try and figure out what to do in any particular case, we should look back to what the framers of the Constitution would have done. And in a lot of cases, those of us who are, I don't know, women, black, uh, Latina, Native American, Asian, any any immigrant population, for example, we're not too keen on looking at the Constitution as what it said and having that be what it should say forever. Those of us who are of a marginalized popula- population, I don't know, perhaps someone who was considered three-fifths of a person for tax purposes, we would like to see the Constitution be read as a living, breathing document, something that has to change with the time. Because you know what? I don't think the framers of the Constitution would have expected a lot of the shit that's going on right now in terms of technology, in terms of social advances. And if you're going to look and say, well, we got to do what the framers want to do, a lot of us would be, would be readily and, and easily screwed. The mattress industry is getting a makeover, and Casper has been leading the way. Previously, customers were forced to pay notoriously high showroom markups, but Casper cuts out the middlemen and passes the savings on to you. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-size mattress and only up to $950 for a king-sized. And Casper mattresses provide resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort with their one-of-a-kind hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam for just the right sink and just the right bounce. But you don't have to take anyone's word for it. You can try a Casper for 100 days risk-free with free delivery and painless returns. As a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and support the show by visiting casper.com slash best and using best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website. But again, it's casper.com slash best and using the promo code best at checkout.
Chief Justice John Roberts said that the death of Antonin Scalia, the longest-serving Supreme Court justice who died February 13th, represents a great loss to the country he so loyally served. But though encomia lauding Scalia's service and his philosophy are coming from many quarters, they are rubbing many people very wrong indeed. And mindful of journalism as the first draft of history, some are concerned that Scalia's official memory will be a serious distortion of his real ideas and impact. Paul Rosenberg is a contributor at Salon.com, a columnist for Al Jazeera English, and senior editor at Random Lengths News. He joins us now by phone from Southern California. Welcome to Counterspin, Paul Rosenberg. Hi, glad to be with you. We expect obituaries, you know, to tell us about a person's unfailing graciousness and how he loved a joke and shooting skeet, you know, but it matters very much how reporters characterize Scalia's ideas and his record. I was never going to shoot skeet with the guy, but I am living in a country whose laws he shaped. So I want to start you with what is presented as his big idea, what's behind the conservative intellectual renaissance that the New York Times says that Scalia led. Originalism. Now, setting aside how Scalia used it, how much sense does it make just as an idea, originalism? Well, how he used it makes a lot less sense than the broader sense that it conveys. Mm -hmm. If you want to take the broader sense to mean trying to understand what things were originally intended to do, that can be a useful starting place. But if you limit it to dictionary meanings at the time, that's a really bizarre way to go about things. And it's not something that he even did himself when it came to perhaps his most notorious case, Heller, in which he just ignored the preamble to the Second Amendment and said, oh, you know, that, that just doesn't count. We, we, don't, we don't have to worry about well-regulated militias. Let's just go right to the right to bear arms. It's more of a, a posture, a, a bludgeoning instrument to attack others than something that's really a solid guiding principle that he himself actually was faithful to or that any of us should take seriously, really. You want to look to political psychology to understand what's going on here. It's, it's very much reasoning to reach a predetermined result. And that's not what judges are supposed to do. But people can't help but do it. What they can do is be more conscious. And he was one of the least conscious people of what he was doing. For example, I point to a very devastating review of his book that was written by another very prominent conservative, Judge Richard Posner, who's been called the most important conservative thinker who's not on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And he just ripped that book to shreds, and I make reference to it in my piece because it's so devastating, and yet you can't say, oh, he's just a liberal attacking Scalia. He's someone who comes out of the same general political philosophy, but he thinks that, that Scalia's presentation and way of, of thinking about it is just hopelessly muddled and incoherent. The exact opposite of what his reputation is. If someone wants to know what are the biggest cases or the most lasting legacy of Scalia's time on the court, what would you point to? Bush v. Gore, obviously. Right. I mean, in Bush v. Gore, basically what they ruled was that it would be an irreparable harm to continue counting the votes. 
And the idea that that would be the case and that only harm to Bush should be considered, not harm to Gore or to the voters, it was just without precedent. You never find it. It was so unprecedented. Just the idea of taking this abenerated concept and just throwing it around, you know, like confetti, it was a bizarre act with a very indefensible outcome. So that's one thing. And his reaction, of course, when people complain about Bush v. Gore is... Get over it. Get over that's it. What, that's how he defended himself. He just told people to get over it. But he had the same underlying attitude again in the Shelby County case in which they gutted the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, it's not just a good idea. It was an enactment directed by the Constitution, the 15th Amendment, and it was something that they were actually constitutionally directed to do. And basically the judges just decided, well, you know, you didn't do a good enough job. You should have updated your maps that you were using in a different way than you did. Mm-hmm. And the cops held months and months of hearings. They generated tens of thousands of pages to document what they were doing. And the idea that the court could come in and just toss that out and say, not good enough, that's the height of arrogance. And yet he was someone who, when it suited him, would turn to democracy and say, we have to defend democracy. He used democracy as his justification in opposing gay marriage, that people should have the right to be bigots. So he's bizarrely inconsistent everywhere you look. More than hearing that he was a sweetheart who loved his mother, you know, that sort of softening, the sort of fuzzing up of what Scalia actually said in particular cases seems much more worrisome to me. And on that note, I just wonder what you're making of the media coverage. The media coverage is is atrocious, but it's of a part with his heritage. He devoted a great deal of energy to proselytizing. He was involved in the institutional organizing the foundation of the Federalist Society. So all of this propaganda that Mm -hmm. we're hearing, and much of it just repeated by people just trying to do a job, covering the news, and just swallowing this stuff whole. And I think you can't really separate it out. He uses things like calling gay rights uh, special preferences. He uses the right-wing activists, weaves them into his arguments. So it's very much a mistake to think of this as something separate or separable. It's all part of the same culture and it's part of the same political movement. And you can't really separate the law from the politics, from the theatrics, and the weaving of false narratives weaves throughout all of it. And the idea of being personally caustic or bitter, undermining, making fun of his colleagues' rules and rulings and thoughts, you know, and essentially calling them stupid, that seems to me to just to speak to a temperament that just doesn't seem like what you're looking for in a Supreme Court justice. But I'm reading about it now as just, you know, he was just bombastic. He just felt things very strongly. You're absolutely right in that. I mean, they're both to look judicial temperament in judges. And honestly, you shouldn't appoint someone like Scalia to any office because judicial temperament is something he totally lacked. And you can see that reflected in his rulings as well as in his manner. It can be entertaining and it might be nice to see on TV, but in the courtroom, 
where people's lives hang in the balance, that's not what we want a judge to be like. We want a judge to be able to sympathize, to be able to understand both sides, not just one. And that kind of arrogance just is a, a neon sign that this person is not qualified to do that. Well, one of the most devastating rulings associated with Scalia is Herrera v. Collins, and you wrote about that in Salon. It seems to me very strikingly important, his position about killing an innocent person. What happened there? Well, his ruling was that there was no constitutional right that an innocent person could use to secure a a rehearing on a claim of actual innocence. If all of your normal legal procedures didn't give you a way to get a rehearing, evidence that you actually were innocent, there was nothing more to be done. Yeah. It's a very closed, hermetically sealed view of the law, that there's no overarching responsibility to do justice. All there are are the set of rules. No sense of a spirit of the laws at all, in my view, in that approach, because innocent people can and have been executed by the state under that theory. Let me ask you finally, Paul Rosenberg, what do you think is going to happen? I won't ask you to predict, but what do you make of the, first of all, the argument that Obama is not allowed to appoint a successor to Scalia, and, and gosh, it really makes for kind of wild political times, doesn't it? Well, yeah, the, the claim that Obama is not allowed to is just ridiculous. Mm. No one has ever said this before. This is a completely new argument. And would they make it if he were not black? Right. Would they make it if he were not a Democrat? We certainly know they have never made it before. The Constitution says he shall appoint, not that he may. It's not optional. It's his duty. It's very clear cut. So he's just doing what he's supposed to do. But I would say that what Obama ought to do is nominate someone very high profile so that the story does not go away. Of course, it goes without saying someone qualified so that it matters to people and it cannot be ignored. Any final thoughts, Paul Rosenberg, on the way we should think of Antonin Scalia, what's important to remember about him and you know what journalists who are going to be talking about him for a while, some things they might be thinking about or following up on? I think the most important thing probably is simply to remember that in Herrera, he didn't see the law protecting innocent life, and that in Heller, he didn't see a need to read the actual text, which was known for championing. Those two things are what I would keep in mind as the most telling of who he really was. We've been speaking with Paul Rosenberg. He's a contributor at Salon.com, also senior editor at Random Lengths News. You can find his article, Shed No Tears for Antonin Scalia, on Salon.com. Paul Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you very much. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible, where you can get over 180,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. You can access your Audible purchases on their mobile app for iPhones, iPads, Android devices, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. 
If you want to dive deeper into today's topic and the history of the Supreme Court, then you may want to check out Ian Milheiser's Injustices, the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted, whose title, I think, speaks for itself. And don't worry about choosing the wrong book. Audible.com has a great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. And for listeners of Best of the Left, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash left today to start your free trial. That link is also posted on my website, so you can find it there. Again, show your support for Best of the Left and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash left. Antonin Scalia has just passed away, of course, the Supreme Court Justice. Now, uh, he was enormously conservative, but I don't want anybody celebrating his death. That's not what we do. We're the good guys. You wouldn't want anybody celebrating a liberal Supreme Court Justice's death, right? So, now, on the other hand, uh, right now, the conservatives are busy lionizing him. Oh, what an intellectual, what an incredibly brilliant legal mind. And, oh, he was so principled. And the mainstream media, I guarantee you, right now is playing along with that narrative. Oh, he was a strict constructionist. He cared what the, about the founding fathers, and he was so principled. Okay, we have to be clear on the record right now, whether he's alive or he's passed away, you have to be honest about his record. He was no such thing. He was an enormous hypocrite. For all my life, uh, and by the way, I, use, I am a conservative uh, judicially speaking. In fact, I was in the Federalist Society for a long time, which is a very conservative uh, group uh, in, in judicial circles. I'm no longer in the Federalist Society, but I still hold a lot of my conservative judicial views. Now, uh, I had thought that Scalia was a hero. I'm a Republican, I'm conservative judicially, and I, I believe in the myth of him being principled, right? And then every once in a while, I'd see an opinion, I'd go, wait a minute, I, that's the Republican position, but that doesn't make any sense. Because that goes counter to what Scalia has said in the past. And then I saw it again and again and again. And then I realized, oh my God, Scalia doesn't care about principles. He's going to vote for the Republican side and his own religious beliefs, no matter what the law is, no matter what the precedent is. Now, there's a, literally dozens of examples of this. But I'll give you the most famous one. For all my life, Scalia has been talking about states' rights. The states have rights. Look at the Constitution. We must let the states decide. And then in Bush v. Gore in 2000, Florida said, we have the right to count any way we like. We want to make sure we recount the state to make sure we've got the right uh, winner of the election. Scalia and the other conservatives stepped in and said, we don't care about states' rights at all. States' rights are irrelevant. Florida has no states' rights. No, you're not allowed to recount. Oh, so it turns out you were a giant hypocrite. And we just did a story on another hypocrisy he had just yesterday on the show. He wrote a book explaining how if there are two contradictory laws, you must let the executive branch decide. And then the executive branch comes in with new EPA rulings. He reverses himself from his own book and says, ah, no, 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 you don't let the executive branch decide. No, uh, we're not going to let them decide. The guy just wanted to get to the conclusion that was based on his politics. So whatever you hear on TV is not true in, in that if they go to say, oh, he was principled. He isn't. Any legal scholar that studied him knows that, okay? So there'll be a lot of mythology. Now, I'll give you exact quotes from Scalia to give you a sense of what Scalia was actually like. Uh, on a death row case, Troy Davis 
there was substantial evidence, according to the court, Justice Stevens, that he was innocent. Seven out of the nine witnesses had recanted, saying, no, 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 he didn't do it. Here's what Scalia wrote in his dissent. This court has never held that the Constitution forbids the execution of a convicted defendant who has had a full and fair trial, but is later able to convince a habeas court that he is actually innocent. In other words, I don't give a damn that he's actually innocent. If we went through the correct procedure, put him to death anyway. <laughs> That's who Scalia is. I've got more quotes for you. What he loved to do is deny other people rights. When he came to his group, oh, no, no, they have to have all the rights in the world. But when he came to other groups, here was his thought on uh, the LGBT community. Quote, if we cannot have moral feelings against homosexuality, can we have it against murder? Can we have it against other things? Wow. <laughs> More. Now, this is when it comes to atheists. With respect to public acknowledgement of religious belief, it is entirely clear from our nation's historical practices that the Establishment Clause permits this disregard of polytheists and believers in unconcerned deities, just as it permits the disregard of devout atheists. He made the unbelievable assertion that the Constitution says, yeah, even though we're not allowed to establish a religion, we are allowed to discriminate against atheists. But when it comes to his own religion, principles be damned, the Constitution be damned, the strict interpretation of the obvious words of the Constitution be damned. He doesn't like atheists. He doesn't like gay people. He's going to rule against them no matter what. This guy had no principles. Now, on the issues of his religious beliefs that he used on almost all the cases in the social realm, here's what he thought about evolution. Quote, the body of scientific evidence supporting creation science is as strong as that supporting evolution. In fact, it may be stronger. How preposterous. He goes on to say, the evidence for evolution is far less compelling than we have been led to believe. Evolution is not a scientific fact, since it cannot actually be observed in the laboratory. Rather, evolution is merely a scientific theory or guess. It is a very bad guess at that. The scientific problems with evolution are so serious that it could accurately be termed a myth. So, if you hear on television, which you most certainly will, that this guy was a genius, remember, he was so scientifically illiterate that he thought evolution was a myth, and that creation science was the better scientific answer. Where God goes, let there be light, and I will take a rib from Adam and make a woman out of it. He thought that was more likely scientifically than evolution. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But I'm not done yet. One final quote, and this one's about the devil. Quote, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. This guy believes that there is a Beelzebub. He is literal. And, for example, right now, he's torturing Mahatma Gandhi. Because Gandhi did not accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, according to the Scalia's beliefs, he is in hell, being eternally tortured. He literally believes in that devil. So Scalia has passed away. And for his sake, given how many rights he tried to take away from so many Americans, I hope to God 
that he is wrong about the devil. Akil, I would be remiss if I didn't bring Scalia's voice into this conversation simply because nobody did Scalia better than Scalia. Exactly. And <laughs> I want to listen to this is um a conversation he had in 2006 with Justice Breyer. And here he is explaining why his form of originalism or textualism is so much better than what he would probably describe as Breyer's loosey-goosey hippie alternative. Let's have a listen, and then I would love you to react. I, 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 I agree that you should have different people with, 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 with different who reach different results, but one would think that after 200 years, there would be some consensus on what we think we're doing when we interpret the Constitution. You know, I mean, this is, these are wildly divergent views. Are we taking broad concepts such as equal protection and due process and asking, what should these concepts mean today? That's one, one view. Or, on the other hand, are we saying, what did these concepts mean when, when they were adopted? Now, as, as for the difficulty of figuring that out, the historical problem, yes, there is a I'm not pretending that, uh, that doing it by text and, and the original meaning of that text is perfect, that it's going to solve every problem. But it solves an awful lot of problems, especially the most controversial ones. It doesn't take a whole lot of history to figure out that nobody thought that the, the Bill of Rights stopped a state from prohibiting abortion. Nobody thought that the Bill of Rights prohibited a state uh, from, uh, from criminalizing sodomy. Nobody thought that the Bill of Rights prohibited states from uh, prohibiting assisted suicide. So many of the most controversial questions, it's a piece of cake to decide it. So piece of cake, Akil. It's so easy. Uh, that was vintage Scalia, right? This is just a kid could do it. Uh, thoughts about his version of his own approach? Well, it's wonderful that we get to hear um, his own voice. So thank you for that. Uh, um, he himself admitted that sometimes, actually, that he would side with precedent um, if the precedent were very well settled, even though the text and the history suggested otherwise. So I'll give you an example where I'm way to the right of Justice Scalia, believe it or not. Um, no one at the time of the founding or Reconstruction thought there was an exclusionary rule, where evidence that's very reliable, um, that proves someone is guilty of something, the smoking gun, should be tossed out because the evidence was acquired in an illegal search or seizure. And so I said, gee, following Scalia's principles, we should get rid of the exclusionary rule. The only problem is Justice Scalia never seemed to think so. Fine. But never told me why. Never told me why the Scalia who said all of those things about sodomy laws and abortion and all the rest didn't say the same thing about um, the exclusionary rule. And, and when he did talk about it at all, he said, well, some things are settled as a matter of precedent. Well, some of these other things are settled as a matter of precedent, too. And when do you go with precedent? And when do you go with text or original intent? That's Brown versus Plessy. 
let's talk about women's rights. Um, Justice Scalia sounded in a case called VMI a little bit like the Justice Scalia that we heard in that clip, because he said, well, the framers of the 14th Amendment really wasn't about women's rights. VMI was a case about whether the Virginia Military Institute could have a much better education system for men than for women. And Justice Scalia, sounding very traditionalist, basically said, well, we have this tradition of uh, VMI for men for a long time. Uh, so, But if you're a traditionalist, does that mean that women's rights really are not Front and center. Now, the text of the Constitution says equal. It doesn't say race. The history was maybe about race, but I believe it was about actually women too, and Justice Scalia never engaged that history because he actually wasn't an historian. How do we factor in the later 19th Amendment and second-generation feminism? And how do we factor in the fact that today women are saying this isn't equal, marriage isn't equal um, in the 1970s, even if women weren't saying that in the 1870s? So sometimes Justice Scalia, I think, did suggest that it was a little easier than it turned out being. And sometimes um, Justice Scalia didn't quite reconcile all the tensions in his own thinking. I, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about, you know, you, you've said it implicitly, but, you know, Scalia very explicitly said, look, I'm a faint-hearted originalist. That was his famous uh, phrasing, and he would distinguish himself from Clarence Thomas, uh, who he would say, you know, is, is much more of an originalist than I am. Uh, in a 1997 speech, I think he said, I'm an originalist, I am a textualist, I am not a nut. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit, Akhil, about the space he would put between himself, his own version of originalism, and Justice Thomas. So um, when you say you're not a nut, what happens to this idea that you're just following the text and the rules? Because if you're actually going to say, gee, sometimes the text is nutty and doesn't make sense, that's okay, but now you're starting to sound a lot like the very Justice Breyer um, whom you're criticizing when he talks about pragmatism and common sense and judgment. I'm glad that we're bringing Justice Thomas into the conversation because I don't think Justice Thomas gets enough credit for his very distinctive vision, a very interesting, powerful vision. Uh, the one other person that I think we just can't not bring into the conversation if we are talking seriously about textualism and originalism, uh, and judicial restraint, I'd want us to remember the great Justice Hugo Black, Franklin Roosevelt's first appointee to the court in the late 1930s. He always carried a copy of the Constitution around with him, and he believed in text, and he believed in history and original intent, and he was a liberal lion. He was, in some ways, the heart and soul of the Warren court. He, even before Earl Warren and William Brennan, these great liberals, joined the court, Hugo Black, often in dissent, is saying criminal defendants should have appointed counsel, indigent criminal defendants, um, which will become Gideon versus Rainwright. He said, actually, there shouldn't be malapportionment. There should be one person, one vote. The Bill of Rights should be applicable against states as well as the federal government after the 14th Amendment. We should get rid of organized prayer in the public schools and have religious equality. Um, equal means equal, and that means we shouldn't have racial apartheid. Hugo Black is saying all these things, actually, as a liberal, 
but also as a textualist and an originalist. So I wouldn't want our listeners to think that originalism and textualism are games that only conservatives can play. They're actually not. They're games that liberals can play and have played, and there's no one who played the game better than Hugo Black. And, and he sounded... Sometimes, like Justice Scalia, and critics said, that's a little too simplistic, you, you know, um, it, it's not quite as easy as that. But isn't it interesting that we have Scalia on the right and Thomas on the right, but we also have Hugo Black on the left, sounding sometimes very similar. The court's interpretation renders words inoperative, inoperative. Goes beyond giving words bizarre meanings. Words no longer have meaning. Understatement by name is an opinion on the Affordable Care Act. I call attention to this court threat to American democracy, democracy, impossible possibilities. All the world does not expect logic. The fact that the court has such an impact on, you know, whether or not things actually can get done, and because they are for all intents and purposes, you know, the last voice, right? The people that if they say no, good luck getting it past them. You can always maybe write an amendment to the Constitution, but there's a reason those things are um, few and far between. So for the most part, when a Supreme Court seat opens up, you're putting someone in office that's going to be there on average 20, 30 years. So it's a huge deal. And they're going to have a one ninth say in the most important issues of our time and the things that you know most impact a president's ability to get something done the way they want i mean there's a reason they're not just putting the best person on the job right there's a reason there are interviews there's a reason there's a confirmation process and there's a reason that the kind of questions they're going to ask at the confirmation process are things like what is your opinion on roe versus wade i mean if it's not political, why are we asking any of this stuff? Because if you answer that question wrong, you don't get the job. So the people who eventually get the job are not the best justices. They're the people that didn't answer questions like that from the left and the right wrong. That's also how corruption impacts who gets picked for the Supreme Court. The justices themselves may not take money, but they're getting the job based on the priorities of someone who's determining those priorities often based on who's giving him money and what for. You know, you may argue, for example, that the things I just said about the court not defending individual rights is incorrect because, Dan, listen, uh, the Supreme Court justices uh, I've liked on the court have defended my Second Amendment rights. Well, you might say the Supreme Court justices that I've liked on the court have defended my, you know, reproductive rights. Yes, but those are both heavily funded interests. We have a lot of our most important rights that aren't really defended by much money at all. Fourth Amendment, for example, is a perfect one. And even though these justices may see things 
you know, totally from a legal point of view, totally unbiased, not taking any money, uncorrupt to the core, the people that are deciding whether or not they like those justices based on the questions they asked are anything but. And their priorities determine who ends up on the court. So whose priorities really determined who ended up on the court? Maybe the people that gave the original money to the legislators who had to decide to confirm or not to confirm in the first place. You know, the old line about why you really can't stop money in politics with campaign finance reform of the sort we've had in the past is because money's like water. It just finds a way, you know, to its destination. And even though the court itself is somewhat insulated to the direct in a flow of, of corruption from the rest of the system, it's like water, and it finds a way indirectly to impact it anyway. We'd be fools to kid ourselves that that wasn't the case. Already you see the BS meter skyrocketing on all sides, with the president and the Democrats saying it would be some sort of a, a criminal offense practically for the Republicans to not let him, you know, with so many months left in office, nominate you know, and get confirmed the next justice to replace Scalia, and the Republicans basically, you know, saying similar things on their side. And folks, the reason this is all BS is because if you flipped the president's party label and this entire thing was just the opposite of what it is, everyone would be doing what the other side is doing. Oh, exactly. Exactly. The hypocrisy level to do it anyway when everybody knows the other side would react exactly the same drives me crazy, right? Can't you at least acknowledge that we are smart enough to know that if this were George W. Bush doing this and this was going to be another Scalia to replace the last Scalia, that you wouldn't be delaying every step of the way? Of course you would, and your supporters would expect you to. You can't let another judge, blah, 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 okay? That's how it would be. American politics, maybe politics anywhere. Here's the problem I have. If you look at my biases that I laid out earlier, the idea that, you know, the protection in terms of individual rights is, is such a low priority for our legislators now. And you think about the court when I was a kid doing so much to sort of take up those issues. We could argue whether or not what they did was, was good or bad. Or, I mean, but the idea that that was an important thing for them to champion was important to me. Now, do you think anybody that got up there and said uh, in the interview process, Mr. President, I think executive authority has gone too far in this country. I think there's too much secrecy, uh, and I do think that Americans are being spied on too much. Uh, goodbye. So you're not going to make it on the court if you think the way... You know, I think a justice has to has to look to, to reform our country and take it back to a place where we're more like we're supposed to be in all the myths. How about that? Does that make sense? To fix the problems I see, we need court justices that see that as a priority, and they will never make it through the nominating or confirmation process if they think the way I want them to think. It's also partly the reason, folks, why, you know, you're not going to get Supreme Court justices probably ruling on campaign finance questions the way we want either. Because the people who are nominating these justices, regardless of what they say, are more interested in crippling the fundraising opportunities of their partisan opponents than they are fixing the system as a whole, right? The plans that they like are the ones that will hurt the other party. The plans they don't like are the ones that would hamstring all the parties. So you're not going to nominate a person who thinks too... um outside the box on that either. You see what I'm saying? This is this is where the nomination process and the confirmation process end up making sure that we get people who are on there because they see the Constitution a specific way. And over time, that warps everything. 
So when Justice Roberts says we're seeing the court as political, or he's worried about that, I would suggest that, you know, the minute he starts surprising me with major votes, um, I'll change my mind. You know, I get why people say you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead. I really do. But that's for when regular people die. It's not supposed to apply to rich and powerful asshole members of the ruling elite who had enormous power and used it for evil. Not speaking ill of the dead applies to your uncle who chain-smoked and was an angry drunk. It's not for a judge who sanctioned torture and advocated imprisoning homosexuals. So let's have at it, shall we? <laughs> I mean, I feel bad for Scalia's family, but I feel good for everybody else. <laughs> Scalia's death has inspired Republicans to pause and reflect and find an entirely new way to be full of shit about the Constitution. <laughs> In lieu of flowers, the Scalia family requests that Guns be sent to any crazed psycho who happens to want one. No questions asked. <laughs> you know, he's been referred to as a dogmatic extremist and an ultra-conservative zealot. Hey, let's remember that Scalia was a person just like the corporations who are mourning his death. <laughs> his passing raises many important questions for Americans like, with Scalia gone, who will put the next Republican into the White House? <laughs> with Scalia gone... Who will represent dead old white guys from over 200 years ago? With Scalia gone, will Clarence Thomas have even less to say? <laughs> Scalia is considered by conservatives as the greatest Supreme Court justice of our era. Yep, no Supreme Court justice fought harder against equal protection. He ruled that homosexuals should be imprisoned, was against gay marriage and said it will have adverse social effects. He was for overturning Roe versus Wade. He was for the death penalty and was pro-torture. He said African Americans should go to schools that have a slower learning track than whites. Scalia voted against acknowledging DNA evidence that finds people on death row innocent, saying, quote, executing the innocent doesn't violate the Constitution, end quote. His judicial record shows a man who was small-minded, backward, and bigoted. Or as Republicans would say, a really great guy. <laughs> Scalia is like if you put a Donald Trump supporter on the Supreme Court. To review, according to Scalia, innocent people on death row aren't people. Black students desiring higher education aren't people. And gay people loving each other aren't people. But corporations, they're people. 
And let's remember, Scalia died at a Texas ranch owned by a billionaire who had a lawsuit against him turned down by the Supreme Court. Because, you know, justice is blind if you have enough money. Scalia's death has inspired many conspiracy theories from right-wingers, some who believe it was a hit job by the president. Even Donald Trump said Scalia's death was very suspicious. Yes, the death of a 79-year-old chain-smoking, overweight diabetic is extremely suspicious. <laughs> Republicans are calling for the president not to nominate a Supreme Court justice because they are strict constitutionalists who never, ever have read the Constitution. Republicans are relying on an important historical precedent. For the last 80 years, they've been full of shit. Conservatives consider Scalia irreplaceable. Yes, it'll be hard to find another justice with Scalia's impressive commitment against justice. Scalia loved the judicial robe. He thought black was very slimming. <laughs> Antonin Scalia said the Constitution is, quote, not a living document and is dead, dead, dead. Well, now that Scalia is also dead, he's become the ultimate constitutionalists. Scalia worked so hard preventing a better future that the future moved on without him. We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks on the consequences of the 2016 election being put into stark relief, David Pakman on the hypocrisy of the GOP regarding the Scalia replacement appointment, This Week in Blackness talked about Obama speaking out about his constitutional imperative to nominate a new justice, Counterspin spoke with Paul Rosenberg about Scalia's legacy, Jank from the Young Turks also broke down Scalia's legacy, the Amicus podcast from Slate talked with Akil Reed Amar about how the political outcomes of the judicial philosophy of originalism that Scalia made famous can actually cut both ways. You heard in there the band Coheed and Cambria working with Funny or Die, singing some of Justice Scalia's dissenting opinions. Dan Carlin on Common Sense explained how the SCOTUS is deeply influenced by money in politics, even while pretending to be above politics altogether. And finally, Jimmy Dore laid out his own eulogy for Scalia the way he saw fit. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, Chris from Colorado Springs um, I'm about an episode behind I just listened to the media episode But I wanted to call to respond to a couple of things First of all, the, the caller, uh, Megan from Seattle She's a senior in high school uh, First of all, awesome to you I teach seniors It's great to actually have a senior plugged in enough To be calling into your show, that's awesome uh, Secondly, about the high-stakes testing um, When we say high-stakes We don't always necessarily mean for students I know at my school we have a, a, a myriad of tests that we give our kids, and I, I'm lucky enough to work in a district where I can determine the impact that exam has on my students' grades. So, for instance, for me, I only weight exams in my class as 10% of their grade, but I teach English, so I weight their, their essays and stuff a lot higher. So the tests are really kind of low stakes for my students, but they're high stakes for me. Um, the way the Colorado teacher quality standards work is 50% of my evaluation is based on how my students perform on these standardized tests. And there, there's a lot of ins and outs. And um, my district also 
is graded on how our students as a whole do on the exam. And that determines how much money we get. So the high stakes doesn't necessarily mean for the kids. I know I try to create an environment where my students don't feel like they're under pressure all the time um, with some clock hanging over them. But I know that my administrators feel that way, and that pressure, downward pressure, gets pushed down onto us teachers. It's just luckily I work somewhere where I have a choice whether or not to apply that pressure to my kids or not. So just don't get the high, test, uh, high stakes thing twisted. It's still high stakes, just maybe not for, for you, Megan, as a student. Um, I don't know how it works in Seattle. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the digital divide that you brought up. I've experienced this greatly um, with the population that I work with. It's a big military town. A lot of kids come and go. And it's also kind of low income, especially for the area of Colorado where I live. And a number of my students tell me that they have to write their essays on their phone. I have one student whose parents are divorced, and depending on whose house he's at, it depends on whether or not he has a computer. And we're being pushed by our district to try to put everything onto Google Classroom or Schoology or another type of Internet-based learning platform where students can upload their work. And at one sense, as a progressive, this is great because, you know, less paper, less printing out, less things for me to have to deal with, less things for the kids to have to deal with. But there is, a, I'd say, maybe 10 to 15 percent of my student population that simply does not have access to the Internet except at the school. So far, we've been able to make it work with things like study halls and passes so that kids can use the computers that are there at the school. But I can definitely see that being a problem. And the idea of broadband becoming something that can be subsidized by the government like phone tops in for a while just makes a lot of sense. You know, it sucks to have to have some of my students who are athletes or in bands have to go to a library, a public library, because the schools are closed, just so they can finish essays for me. And that that can be a, a little bit frustrating for sure. So I really hope that, um, you know, Barbara Lee is awesome. And I hope that that bill that she introduced would gain traction. Anyway, I just wanted to comment uh, on those couple of things. Uh, thanks for all you do, Jay, and I will talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Emma from New York City. And I wanted to just give a kind of a quick response to the caller who is talking about divisions of class. First, just some few statistics to really sort of illustrate some of the things that he was talking about. First, we should note that this trend of change in what sort of jobs that people have and how that figures into class really began its complete shift over in 1991 when the fire or finance, insurance, and real estate industries surpassed manufacturing's contribution to GDP. And as of May in 2010, the occupations with the highest percentage of U.S. employees were retail salespersons, cashiers, office clerks, food preparation and food service workers, nurses, waiters and waitresses, and customer service representatives. In 1969, one-third of jobs in the United States were in goods-producing industries. In 2007, only 16% of jobs were. Between 1970 and 2010, Germany, Italy, France, Japan, Sweden, the Netherlands, Canada, Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. experienced declines in the percentage of people employed in manufacturing and increases in the percentage of people employed in services. The drop in the UK was the highest at 23.9%. Now, I really disagree, though, with the sort of proposed solution of retraining people in uh, wage-earning 
backgrounds. It's trying to make the world that we're becoming fit the model rather than create a model to fit the world that we are becoming. And the model that we should be creating to fit the world that we are becoming is a guaranteed income. And the big reason for that is automation. And one of the major things I disagreed with was this idea that the professional classes are fine. That's not true. The professional classes, many of them, especially if you think about things like accounting, are going to be automated out of existence in a matter of 25 or so years. And several economists, and you even had a show about, a whole show about automation that talked about about this at length. The professional classes are not in any sort of way safe from this trend. They're just further down from the chopping block than the wage earners happen to be. And so it's really important that we do get this guaranteed income thing started, um, at least as a temporary solution. And the statistics, by the way, came from a really great book that talks about a lot of these things at length called The Communist Horizon by Jody Dean. Thanks, Jay. Hey, Jay and Best of the Left. This is Ryan from Phoenix. Just going to give a quick plug for urban planning because that's what I do in voicemails. One way that you can influence the health outcomes of your community is to get involved in what's called a health impact assessment. This is something that you can encourage your community leaders to do, your city staff to do. You can take it upon yourself. There's a lot of quickly adopted frameworks for how to conduct an HIA properly and uh, just making sure that it's injected as part of the decision-making process for any city project or any new development or any redevelopment that happens within your city. What it does is it looks at the environment, looks at your network for your pedestrians and your bikes and your cars, make sure that those thoroughfares are prioritized to really help make active transportation a, tr- a, a true opportunity, which is something other than being sedentary sitting behind the wheel of your car. So active transport's a great way to promote health. And uh, anything that you can do to help reduce the amount of sedentary activity or inactivity that uh, is part of your life. So better access to parks for recreation, better access to bikes and pedestrian ways, uh, and, and looking at proximity between homes and workplaces and commercial businesses and looking at the network to try to integrate all those uses into a better urban fabric rather than promoting large swaths of land that are dedicated purely for housing and purely for uh, commercial industry and purely for office or purely for employment that's just pushing these uses further and further apart making active transportation less viable option so health impact assessment is is one of your better tools and that does take public investment and that gets me to a broader point of how HIAs are just one public good that can come out of your tax dollars. And we've been cutting tax dollars down to their bone for many decades, thanks to Ronald Reagan and the slew of guys who came after him. Gotta get rid of that. Gotta talk about what the true cost of cutting taxes really has promoted. All of these great public goods and, and things like water delivery systems, wastewater management, roadways crumbling, bridges crumbling, 
all of these things that have great intersectionality between different populations and different regions and different industries, those are really hard to do in a purely capitalistic market where you're depending on individual decision makers to make individual decisions that have the better outcome for everybody. Look, there's certain industries and certain decisions that are best made on an individual level in the capitalistic market. I will grant that. But there are plenty of examples where the intersectionality and the public good and the positive externalities that can come out of public investment is just cannot be ignored. And the more we highlight that the public sector can provide these positive externalities that really promote a great, healthy private sector the better off we'll be. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today, we say goodbye to Katie Klebusik. After around two and a half years, February was her last month in the role of producing activism content and managing the social media feeds for the show. For years now, she has been working towards making her own independent writing and activism career sustainable so that she doesn't have to work on anyone else's projects besides her own. And so congratulations are in order for her having achieved that goal. For the time being, her role is going to be filled by Amanda Hoffman of Modus Communications, who has 10 plus years of writing, social media, and general communications management experience. Currently, her primary gig is heading up the comms team of a national environmental foundation. And full disclosure, she's also my girlfriend, but don't let that distract you from everything I just said about her absolutely sterling credentials. So I am excited to see what she has in store for the social media feeds, and you should be too. And you can take this opportunity to like us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Now, changing gears dramatically, we just heard from Ryan from Phoenix about urban planning. That's his gig. And it reminded me that I got a question just a day or so ago about gentrification and that maybe Ryan or anyone else listening may have a better answer than I'm able to come up with. So I heard from Rambo. Rambo writes in, I wanted to write because I know I'm wrong on an issue, but I don't know any other way to think about it. I'm talking about gentrification. I live in New Orleans and know it is a serious issue we face, but I can't help but see how much nicer the city is becoming. While it might be said right there, nicer for whom, I have to say I think everyone. The newer housing developments are kept in good order, and the new shops and restaurants that pop up bring business and jobs to areas that have been starving for some kind of development. Now, I know some people will eventually have to move, but for a lot of people, they are getting safer, cleaner neighborhoods. I'm writing to you, though, because I must be missing something major, and I figure you might be the person who can point me to how we can revitalize neighborhoods and still make them affordable. Any article, book, documentary, film, or podcast would be much appreciated. The end. Okay, so my very basic, very uneducated response to Rambo is that fighting the negative aspects of gentrification, you know, the fact that it forces many people out of their homes and out of their neighborhoods and pushes them to the margins of society where uh, things continue to uh, deteriorate and they end up in badly managed ghettos and being over-policed and all of those types of things, my thoughts are centered on the fact that there are benefits 
of lots of different kinds of people being mixed together. So like in school, integrated classrooms with kids of different races and income levels statistically helps all of the kids do better, not just the ones with less money or darker skin. Similarly, I think people of all ages do better when they live in neighborhoods where lots of different kinds of people mix together. So if gentrification is the result of money flowing into a neighborhood, raising the standard of living so much that it pushes the original inhabitants out of the area, then to me, the solution is to find ways to plan to have that neighborhood become a mixed neighborhood, not just because it's the nice thing to do for poorer people, but because it makes better communities for all. So maybe that comes from building high-density housing, which serves to keep prices down naturally, but it could also be local governments deciding to mix in government-subsidized low-income housing or enacting rent control laws right in those gentrifying areas. Obviously, the business interests and developers don't want this to happen. They would prefer every apartment building be a luxury building that they can rent for the maximum number of dollars per square foot, which is why governments so often cave to that pressure and opt to cluster low-income housing together on the outskirts of town where they inevitably uh, form ghettos plagued by being in food deserts and are disconnected from good public transit and are over-policed by cops working on filling arrest quotas and and so on, and so on. So to me, it's not about stopping progress or preventing neighborhoods from improving and attracting investment. It's about attracting that investment while putting policies in place that encourage not only the best ethical outcome of not forcing all poor people out of their neighborhoods, but also the just plain old best outcome for everyone, which is a community full of a mix of all different kinds of people, which ends up benefiting everyone. But like I said, I really don't know much about this subject. No one talks about it. There, there don't seem to be a lot of really great ideas bouncing around the, you know, liberal blogosphere, podcastosphere, or anything like that. At least not that I know of. And so I would really appreciate hearing from anyone who actually does know what they're talking about. Uh, if you would like to comment on this or anything else, please keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame. How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past